Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. All right, now let's get down to brass tacks. Tonight uh, is the sixth lecture of the series, uh, which is called Bone in Each Other's Throat, State of Israel and Jewish Religion. Always a wonderful topic, 1952 to 1956. Let's see how much has remained the same and how much has been different over here. I start by... Uh, Invoking the past a little bit, which is a shocking thing to do in a history series, isn't it? The, uh, the years 52 to 56, 1956, saw the crystallization of the unique religious reality of the modern state of Israel. I repeat, the unique religious reality of modern Israel, which is unlike any diaspora situation in the past. Let me explain. Before 1800, let me just backtrack a little bit. Before 1800, approximately, the traditionalist consensus, and I've spoken about this before, prevailed throughout the diaspora. Well, wherever Jews were, they was organized around these four items that I've uh, mentioned in the past. I'm sure you uh, recall them, right? This has to do with religious doctrine. This has to do with keeping laws and mitzvot. This has to do with the fact that Jews everywhere never were citizens of the country, but rather were recognized by the state in which they lived as being members of something else called the Jewish community of that, which was a legal corporation. That's who you paid your taxes to, and that's whose laws you had to obey or they could punish you. And finally, cultural insularity, which is always a, a football that we're uh, wrestling with today, but that was a hallmark of the Jewish communities of yesteryear. In the 1800s, uh, over the course of a century, the consensus cracked. But, uh, you know, between all the, you know, the, the urbanization and the Industrial Revolution and the uh, rise of historicism and the modern philosophy and everything we associate with the modern world, for many, many Jews, most, I don't know, but many, many Jews, uh, they no longer found this tenable or this or this or this. Actually, the state itself destroyed the autonomous schools and communities, and I don't think anybody even wants them. In Baltimore, Maryland, you're in the United States of America, you say like this, I'll be Jewish as a member of a shul that I can leave or not leave, I don't want a member of a coercive community, right? And um, although once upon a time it was a pillar of what being Jewish was about, the fact that it's strange to so many shows how far we've changed and, and uh, how far things have moved. Cultural insularity is, is, is uh, people are fighting about in Judaism till today, but in the European states of the 1800s, 1900s, you had to go to public school, you had to get a, a secular education, and even in America, you have to get a secular education if you go to day school, as you know. So uh, those were out to lunch, but uh, fundamentalism was a, a big fight, and the bottom line, as you and I know so sadly, no new consensus emerged. Right? That's the dominant, overarching reality of Jewish life for the last 200 years, no consensus. Right? That's just the way it goes. Instead, uh, some stayed religious, as they call it, some still adhered, fundamentalism, and others did not. Movements and trends in the 1800s undertake to reimagine Judaism, or reinvent it, if you prefer. But this took two separate forms, and uh, from reaction to them, if I can use that term, it also took two separate forms. And bear with me, because all this has a lot to do with the state of Israel. In the first half of the 1800s, of the 19th century, the changes at that time, which were in Germany, were religious in nature. Because the German society at that time was very staunchly religious and Christian. Therefore, the Jews are going to try to reimagine or reinvent Judaism, those who do, in a religious mode. And I'm talking about Reform Judaism and Conservative Judaism, both of which are invented in the first half of the 1800s in 
in Germany and spreads elsewhere. So everyone at that time conceives of Judaism as a religion. These trends that I just described will take place in Central Europe and in Western Europe and in the USA, but they will not take place in the first half of the 1800s in Eastern Europe. It's very important what I just said. So this is happening outside of Eastern Europe. So the different types of Judaism are going to be different denominations, religious denominations of Judaism. So you'll have Reformed Judaism, you'll have Conservative Judaism. And in those days, if you talked about a secular Jew, and pay close attention to what I'm saying, if, there's a, if you had a secular Jew, you simply mean a Jew who doesn't practice Judaism at all. They may be halakhically Jewish and they haven't converted, but that's it, right? As so many we know today. They are Jewish, but their Judaism is, is entirely one which is bereft of religion. But not that they were creating a different type of Judaism. Now, um, in the second half of the 19th century, European intellectual culture uh, sharply secularizes. I need only mention, well, I don't know, Charles Darwin, for example, or somebody like that, right? Karl Marx, to show you that these are the hugely uh, influential thinkers at that time. And European culture in general, you know, went decisively and sharply in a secular direction. And at the same time, in the second half of the 1800s, Eastern European Jewry starts to modernize. Notice the modern world suddenly came to Poland, to Russia, to places like that. By this time, if it's the 1870s, 1880s, all the rest of it, reform and conservative religion have no appeal because no religion has an appeal. No normal person, if you're a follower, for example, of Freud or Marx or, or Darwin or anything like that, is interested in any kind of religion whatsoever. And so consequently, notice there's secular Judaism, secular Jew A, and secular Jew B. One is what I just said before. The person has no Jewish content in their life whatsoever. The second is very intensely Jewish. He wants to redefine Judaism as a secular phenomenon. Well, that's called modern Jewish culture, okay? Which means that, uh, yes, there is such a thing called Judaism. No, it's not a religion. Oh, I know it was always viewed as a religion, but that was a mistake, right? There are reasons for that. And instead, uh, just consider, I'll just give you one example. To, you, know, so you shouldn't all look at me weird. Uh, consider a secular Zionist. He's strongly Jewish. He has a very strong idea of what Judaism should be. It's not religious, that's all. So it's a strong Judaism, but it's, it's a culture, and it's something different than religion. This is brand new and never hit before the 19th century. And so uh, what formerly was an oxymoron, because secular Judaism, I thought Judaism was a religion, how can you secular? No longer was after the middle of the, uh, of the 1800s. So uh, the poster boy for this, Let's go to the next one. Chanam, I mean, that's what he was all about, is redefining Judaism as not a religion, as something different. He, this is, he's very eloquent in writing about this this way. And so, as I said before, you're going to now find, let's go to the next chart. Right? I mean, he's Jewish, he's a secular Jew, he's a secular Jew. What's the difference? Both of them are atheists, so what's the difference? Both of them are atheists. What's the difference? The answer is, he's very intensely Jewish in, in his Jewish culture, and he is not. Agreed? No, they're both Jewish. Uh, let me put it this way. They're as halachically Jewish as you and I. Right? They're halachically Jewish as you and I. But what a difference, you see? And all this is completely irrelevant, isn't it? This is the modern world. Okay? The reason, uh, like I say, I'm going somewhere with this. Um, in Europe, attempts to create a viable secular Jewishness are interesting, but anemic and episodic, as I've described in the past. I mean, let's put it this way. Have you ever heard of this guy? No. Do you care who he is? No. He was a big deal once upon a time in the formation of Yiddishism and modern secular uh, Zionist culture. I'm saying, once it had a flash, like, like, a, like a rocket, you know, went somewhere, and then it died. We all know this today, right? 
So it was episodic. It was there, and then it wasn't there anymore. These were attempts to create a different type of Judaism. Imagine in America, they're similar or even today, believe it or not, or maybe not anymore, attempts in this country, among the Jewish community of America, which is large, to create a Judaism which has no religious content whatsoever, but nevertheless very cultural and very secular. This is associated, for example, with the universities and things like this, where, um, where it's very intensely uh, Jewish, but it doesn't, doesn't go anywhere. Right? It hasn't had a kiyam, as, as they say. And uh, so that's a, a key feature of, of the modern Jewish experience. There's one exception to what I'm talking about, and that, of course, is Zionism. That's a Judaism, if you want to call it, meaning it's not a religion, it's a secular phenomenon. It defines Judaism as something important. People even give their lives for it, but it's not religious, okay? Herzl was, of course, the political Zionism, just to get a state. Achad Am is the redefinition of Jewish and the creation of a secular Jewish culture. And between there you have, because they created a yeshuv and then an actual state, this particular form of secular Judaism did not die out. It's the only one. The thing is, by definition, the secular Jews in the yeshuv, pre-state Israel, are not going to reinvent religious Judaism. They're post-religious. True? The Jews in Israel weren't interested in creating another reformed Judaism or something like that. Their Judaism was a secular one, a, a, a strongly felt but completely atheistical religion. They're convinced that a new form of Judaism will evolve in Israel. It will be Judaism, but will not be a religion. That's all these people you see about were like that. All of them are atheists. They're, some are socialists even. Um, they're very intensely Jewish, let's face it. Their whole life is Ivrit. True. I mean, they, they, they're, 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 they're struggling to put together the state of Israel and help the Jewish people and all that sort of thing. But on the question of religion, religion is not part of what, of, of their worldview. Okay? Now, thanks to the Gucci Aliyah, as I always call it, the uh, meaning from, from before 48, when the Sakhnut and the British controlled all there, the secular Jews were able to stock Palestine with quote unquote the right type of Jews the way you stock a fish tank. You couldn't get in if you were too religious, except with small numbers. There was what you call a party, a schlissel, there was a, there, it was all, the, the mafteach, as they call it. it was all based on which group you affiliate with, and the socialist, the mapai and maham got the biggest number of certificates, and this group got this number of certificates, physically speaking. And I can tell you right now, the Hasidim and all, they got this much certificates, and it's stocking a fish tank. You can smile or not smile, but that's the way it goes. It wasn't an actual reflection of the world Jewish population. It was a, it was a eugenically, deliberately dis- d- d- contrived way of creating the right sort of population in Israel, but that only works until 48. Because once you have a state of Israel, you can't do that anymore. And that radically changed the reality. As I told you before, the same thing happened with the Ashkenazim and the Sephardim. Remember that? Prior to 48, the overwhelming number of certificates go to Ashkenazim. So therefore, you can't say Israel once upon a time was like this. It was stocked like a fish tank. But anyway, after 48, it's not, it's not so simple. Now, to recap, the first experience of modernity was in Central and Western Europe, where the redefinition was, was religious, conservative reform, as we call it today. The second experience of modernity was in Eastern Europe, where the redefinition of Jewish was not religious, but was post-religious, particularly like cultural Zionism and socialism and things like that. In the first case, meaning when the redefinition of Jewish was religious, the from view that emerged, the virtue of the religious, was as the most dynamic was that of a principled shredding of communal ties and replacing it with a different model. And that's, of course, exactly what these are famous for. 
Right? They said, it's a new day. Forget the idea we're all in one community. Forget the idea all Jews are in the same boat. Maybe how lucky we are and all the rest of it. When it comes to religion, you guys are illegitimate. The delegitimation of other forms of religious Judaism, reform, conservative, and so forth, became a, 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 a key principle in the, what we call now modern orthodoxy. Right? The, 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 the term or, orthodox, which now the historians used to replace the word traditional. Um, one of the basic definitions of being a religious Jew Herschel Arjun, I'm so from people like that is, that there's only one kind of Judaism and anybody else who tries to make a different sort of religion is doing the biggest crime and should be most strongly uh, criticized and boycotted and this and that and the other. Not physical, but everything sh- short of that. Now, mind you, they are not talking about the guy who has his store open on Shabbos. They're, right. They're not talking about the person who doesn't keep kosher. They're not talking about the person who in their personal life is not so observant and maybe quite radically non-observant. They're talking about the person who says, Judaism says you should be Michal Shabbos. <laughs> In other words, they're talking about the person who tries to redefine the term Jewish religion. As long as you say that the Jewish religion advocates fundamentalism, nomianism, and all the rest of it, fine. We've always had a Jewish history, and we always have, will have. The right-wingers, the left-wingers, the middle, those who are very observant, those who are not observant, what do we say on Yom Kippur? That we invite, quote-unquote, the sinners into Shul. Which means what? The people who in the old days acknowledge that what they're doing is sin, but no, we, you know, each one of us, none of us is perfect, and that they're very comfortable. These people, unlike them, are very comfortable relating to us. They're not talking about the average. They're talking about the person who reinvents Jewish religion. Okay? This is very important. In, in the latter case, however those who were in the second half of the 19th century and weren't redefining Judaism as a religious phenomenon, but rather were redefining Judaism as a secular phenomenon. So basically, what's the attitude over there? If there was a Jewish religion, then the Orthodox would be right. There's no God. (laughs) That's all, you know. There's nothing to talk about. If there was, I agree, it's a beautiful thing. But it isn't. (laughs) You, you, You follow? In that case, since they're conceding that the religious definition of Judaism is the orthodox one, you didn't have this same kind of attitude of we have to sever all of our bonds with the others. Where Hirsch was coming from, for example, and others, let me give you a good example I'm talking about. He had a fight in the Baltimore about the JCC, where it should open the Shabbat. Oh my God, if you talk to Sansa Rafael Hirsch, he says, what are you doing in the first place with one JCC? The front community should dig in their pockets no matter what it costs. And 50 years ago, should have created a second JCC, which you run according to their principles, all the rest of it, because we don't recognize the JCC of the main community. The main community is not legitimate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You see? That's who he was. By the way, he put his money where his mouth is, and his uh, uh, followers did that. The Yankees, they put their money with the mouth, and they built a whole separate parallel institutions. It's two signing hospitals, it's two JCCs, it's two this and two that. That's what it is. By contrast, when you go to Eastern Europe, and there wasn't a rise of a reformed type of Judaism. There's just a post-religious Judaism, if you can follow. It's a secular one, so then you had a different reality. Uh, you had the two covenant robes, Rabbi Yitzchak Specter and the Dvar of Rome. You've heard of, some of you have heard of it anyway. Uh, the covenant community had, like I said before, you had the right-wingers, you had the left-wingers, you had the people who were super from, you had the Michal Shabbos, and Gila the whole thing, the people only come on Yom Kippur, maybe, and so forth. So what? You understand? But all of them sound like this. As far as the religious matters go, I go to these guys. When I ever need it, not that I ever need it, but when I ever need it. 
And, 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 and if you're talking about what the Jewish religion is, talk to them. Personally, I don't buy into the whole idea of religion. It's because I'm a follower of Karl Marx. Or I'm a follower of uh, Charles Darwin. Or something like that, right? But if there was a it's a funny thing, but the fact that it wasn't expressed in religious terms, plus the fact that they were in Tsarist Russia under tr- such tremendous anti-Semitic pressure, both of these dynamics militated that the Jews should develop idea that the community, remember we talked about the autonomous coercive community is one of the four pillars I showed in the board? The notion of community, which is a very powerful notion within Judaism, should remain there, and we should just fight each other, that's all. You don't get divorced over it. You don't have this two JCCs or you have one JCC and you fight over whether to keep the Shabbos. You have one, you have one hospital and you fight whether it should be kosher food or not. You understand? You have one cemetery and you fight over this because, because that's what you do with your family. You, you, you understand? You stay in there and you fight. That, 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 that was the sovereign attitude that prevailed in Eastern Europe. Okay? And it did not lead to the religious seceding from the general community. Uh, these are very important uh, dynamics I'm sharing over here. What is the proper Haredi position on secession? This, my friends, was the big fight in the Agudas Yisrael when it was founded 100 years ago. Back in the 1912, when they had the first Aguda meeting in Agudas Yisrael in, in Katowice, uh, over there. Uh, he was the leader of the Yekis, as you know, Rechaim Brisk, the leader of the Yeshiva world, the Litvaks. Uh, Breuer wanted to make it that the Aguda stands for the principle that no one's allowed to be in a community in which there are uh, other Jews who are uh, reform or conservative or secular or anything like that. And Rechaim Brisker said, no, we don't agree. I don't agree to that. So it's the opposite of what you think. You know, you only think, oh, look how religious he looks. And this guy had a PhD. So he said, no, it's, 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 it, which is true. But it, it, it's not like that. Because he is the voice of Eastern Europe. And he's the voice of Western Europe. He's the son-in-law and the successor of Sanson Ravel Hirsch. And he comes from a different reality. Now, both, you don't need me to tell you that both of these people were great, so they were very from and all the rest of it. They saw it different. Okay? They saw it different. And these two dynamics are very powerful in there. The, so, if you go to the pre-World War II Eastern European community, Kehillah, uh, Poland, Lithuania, you know, Russia, those kind of things, uh, Latvia, it's one big, happy, quarreling family. That's how it was. That was the culture. And religious matters we're left to the Orthodox rabbinate, although more and more drift away from observance. So like I said before, who should run the shul? Of course the community should pay for the shul. The community should also pay for a secular high school, which, is, which will teach anti-religion. They can also pay for a shul that will teach, a high school that will teach religion. You have to. You see? They, uh, if you get married, it's got to be done by the rabbi. You know, you want to get a get, you go by the rabbi. If you, don't, if you don't like what they do, get a civil divorce. This is how it went. You see, when it comes to getting uh, dying and burial, eh, there was, you know, the religious and the ones handle that. When it comes to allocating money for youth activities or for political activities, that we give 95% to the non-religious and 5% to religious. This sort of horse trading went on throughout the hills in Poland, Warsaw, Lublin, Krakow, Lemberg, uh, Lithuania, Kovno, Vilna. You know, th- this is how Jewish life was. In every little community in these areas, there was an Agoda-type party, there was a Mizrahi-type party, there was a Socialist Zionist party, there was a Socialist Zionist A, and a Socialist Zionist B. Then you had the, I mean, it really is true. There was A and B. Then there was what they call General Zionist A and a General Zionist B. I kid you not. And then there's the Zabotinsky party, and the this and that and the other, and you say like this, how can a community of a thousand people have 25 parties? <laughs> have you ever been in the show? <laughs> what's, what's the question? 
You understand? Now, why am I going through all this? It is this model that got transferred into Eretz Yisrael. Because the Zionists, by and large, came from Eastern Europe. And they brought the mores of Eastern Europe with them. You see? And, and the whole idea over there was, you have the religious, you have the non-religious, and they'll fight it out, and so on and so forth. And after all, the non-religious, especially in the Gucci Alia, totally outnumbered the religious. So, big, big deal. And, like I said before, when it, if it was a question of burial or marriage, let, let them handle it. And all the real important stuff, we will handle. And this is the culture. So what I'm trying to get across tonight and the future is culture, culture, culture. That's the dominant uh, thing that, 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 that runs everything, even though you think it's theology or it's philosophy or it's this, that, and the other. You don't realize every one of us is a prisoner of our, of our own culture. Certain things we can stand and certain things we can't stand. It's got nothing to do with its objective reality. So this is now developed in Eastern Europe, and it was the basis for the status quo agreement that Ben-Gurion signed in 1948. Because what was that all about? We've talked about it in the past. When Israel was becoming a state, late 47, with the UN and all that, they wanted the Agud on board, they, obviously they wanted the Mizrahi on board, but they were on board anyway, and they said like this, will be a new state of Israel, Shabbat will be Saturday. Right? Why not? Right? And um, what else? The government will pay for uh, maintaining synagogues and things like this. They'll pay for other things too, you see? And marriage and divorce will be, in the, it will be religious in the hands of the Rabbanut. And all these sorts of concessions were, were actually simply putting on paper what had been the general reality in Eastern Europe for a long time before that. Okay? For a long time before that. Now, um, ironically, because of the Turkish legal tradition, the rabbinate ended up with more power and control over the the people's lives than they ever had in Eastern Europe because of the absence of civil marriage and civil divorce. You see, in Poland and Lithuania's countries, one, at one time or another, they end up getting civil marriage and civil divorce. Uh, after all, consider Poland being a Catholic country, right? And uh, although it is true, I believe Ireland only recently got divorced. Isn't that true? Uh, Ireland being all super Catholic, I believe there were no divorce there. So they must have gone to England or something. But the, uh, no, seriously, but, but Poland, the Eastern European countries, did develop these strong state institutions, and consequently, if somebody in Poland had, I'll, give, I'll just give you one example of what I'm talking about. Suppose, uh, I'm sure this happened, he says, uh, two guys, uh, uh, a man and woman fell in love with a place in Poland in 1930. Uh, he's a Cohen, she's a Grusha, she's a divorcee. The rabbi will marry him, so you go to justice and peace. In Israel, it used to be ruled by the Ottoman Turks, up to 1918. You will not be surprised to hear, they didn't have such a thing called civil marriage, civil divorce, everything's religious. It was a religious Muslim state, and the way they dealt with it was all the marriages will be handled by the Muslim authorities, for the Christians will be handled by the Christian clergy, and for the Jews will be handled by the Jewish clergy. So the British simply took this and kept it on the books. And when Ben-Gurion became the prime minister in '48, they kept it on the books. So the fact is, you have in Israel the control of the marriage and divorce by the rabbinate on the one hand, the Orthodox rabbinate, I might say, and then on the other hand, you have the absence of civil marriage and civil divorce. There's always been a, a pressure cooker in Israel for, for a long time. They're fighting it as we speak, but they've been fighting it for decades. Uh, who knows what's going to happen. Anyway, the bottom line is, I'm telling you, what, I don't know the future, but I'm telling you what happened in the past. Um, furthermore, when Israel becomes a state, there's a big difference of opinion between the Mapai and the Mapam. Okay? Um, here's the Ben-Gurion's leader in Mapai. Here's Meyari. Maybe you heard of him, maybe you didn't. Most of you haven't heard of him. He was the leader of Mapam. Mapam, militantly anti-religious. They picked up that, that's part of their ideology. You understand? In other words, they were Zionist and Marxist equally, in equal measure. And they're very proud, De Gaulle, you know, they're very proud of the fact 
that they are super opposed to what they call clericalism, and they don't want the rabbi to have anything whatsoever, and they figure any kid, boy or girl, is being put in a religious school, their mind is being uh, poisoned, instead they should be uh, uh, exposed only to uh, my palm education, that's the only uh, you know proper one. Of a, and so you know, they, they lived in their own world also. Um, in the governments, the way it worked was they never got enough votes. In the first election, it was my pie 45, my palm 19. And second election, it was like my pie 45 also. And my palm is something like uh, 16. Or whatever. Notice, they, they were nowhere near, near and then they were mid-parek, you know, then they fought, and the my palm broke into different groups. So, but they're the bear, the, the, the boogeyman, you understand? The religious are afraid of them. Uh, and Ben-Gurion says, I guess, he says, this, see, I'm not like that. Right? I'm just some atheist, but I'm okay. We don't, no, the Mapai party didn't have a tradition of a militant anti-religion. This is not religious. You see? And, uh, and consequently, you should consider yourself lucky I'm there, which they did. Which they did. The religious parties fear the Mapai, and so for whatever they support the Mapai, it's not, as a result, um, unlike the situation with the Sfarim, the Ashkenazi, Datim, and Haredim never really had much trouble from the government, um, other than the Partash list, as I said before. In other words, um, they didn't draft, uh, you know, Ashkenazi religious kids. They, if they didn't want to, uh, they didn't go and uh, try to close down their schools. Uh, they didn't uh, persecute the Ashkenazi or really cut their payas or anything like that. None of that ever happened. Uh, the only difference is that there definitely was in Israel a, uh, what shall I say, a segregated employment policy. You had to be a member of the right group. And if you're not a member of the Mapai and you're religious and so forth, it'd be hard to get a job unless you can persuade them you're voting. Actually, somebody was here last week, I forget who, in my speech last week, he came over afterwards and he tells me that his father, back in 48, fought in the war and so on and so forth, was a from guy and he ended up being in the army. I'm just telling what he told me. And the army, and it was an officer and so forth, but he always had to vote Mapai. So why do you vote Mapai? He said, because they know everybody is going to vote there. If there's one vote that's not from Mapai, they're going to vote for him and he'll lose his job. So that's kind of atmosphere. But there's a, I understand, but there's a life besides election day. That's all I'm saying. Okay? And, uh, and, and, and when the Aguda made a deal with Ben-Gurion and all the rest of it, they got out, they got things out of it, and they weren't persecuted per se. The Sephardic religious Olim, on the other hand, is a different story, as, as I described to you. Here, the Mapai plays hardball. Here, they're afraid lest the Sephardic masses vote for the Mizrahi, or for the Aguda, God forbid. Mapai naturally is desperate to do whatever it takes to keep the Sephardic masses from, from not voting for Mapai. Okay? And so they're afraid of what I talked about a couple weeks ago, that somebody might create a Shas party, you know, back in the 50s or, or, or thereabouts, or vote for Begin or the wrong way. And so that's where they cut the payers, and they, they force the parents not to send them to religious schools, and they uh, try to get them in mixed groups. And, they, you know, all, all the horror stories, which did happen, and this was done under the Mapai regime, but it had more to do with the fear of a huge electorate turning them out of office, then questions about religion per se. The Mapai is okay if it's 10, 20% and the religious party is in Knesset. As long as it doesn't get past that, you know, out of hand. And the religious parties together always had 18 at the maximum. So what's that? That's 15%. Because there's 120 in the Knesset. So 18 is, is 15%, correct? 15% is definitely doable. You know, it's not like there's any threat to take over Israel or anything like that. And uh, accordingly, as I said before, the Mapai always played hardball in the Klita process. And, 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 and when the, the Sephardic immigrants came off the ship or wherever they came from and assigned them to these Mabarot, and if you're religious and, you know, you don't play ball with them, you won't get an apartment. And they, they, they did all that sort of thing. 
They also played hardball in the Chinuch process. Right? As I said before, if you're somebody from the Sephardim and uh, you know, if you want to send your kids to a Chinuch Atzmai school or something like that, you will lose your job. Uh, or you won't get a promotion. Or you won't get the apartment. Or, and they can make it tough on you. And these, so, so the, the battles over education, which I'll talk about in a second, are a very major element of the years 52, 56, and the 50s in general. There may be some people here in the audience, I don't know, or not, remember the old days, maybe they were active in the Pe'ilim, right? And the Pe'ilim was that she would send out these guys to try to uh, be mechazek, the uh, Sephardim, to try, try to get him a job, even though he's, he's not playing ball with them up high and all the rest of it. It was, it, was, it was that kind of environment, no question about it. And yet, it is precisely in this period, in 1953, ironically, that the education minister of Israel, who was ex-Yeshiva guy, but the Shono Pirish, as they say, but he turned against religion, Ben Sian Dinur, uh, got his famous law passed, which hurts the socialist education and helps the Haredim, even though that's not what he planned to do. Let, let me explain out loud for a second. I don't know if you know this, but Israel today has um, three public school systems operating at the same time, side by side. Right? Three public, meaning they're free. Three public school systems operating side by side. One is a mamlachti, one's mamlachti dati, and one's chenech Mamlachti means a regular secular public school where they'll teach you the Bible is a fairy tale. You know, they're, they're straight up, it's a good secular education. The ones that are good are good, and the ones that aren't, aren't. But that's what the mamlachti school is, and they're all over Israel. Then they've got another one called mamlachti dati. It's a parallel system for the Mizrahi. That's religious Zionism. They got kindergarten, they got high school, and the only difference is, there they'll tell you the Bible is from God, and, so, and, and, and things like that. And, uh, but they'll have a secular education alongside the religious education. And as you know today, it takes from kindergarten through Barilan University. You see? And, but university costs money. Um, Israel historically up to the eighth grade was free. I hear that recently that the high school is free. Maybe it's not, but whatever. The thing it is, it, it, what, but, but that's the general idea. And then there's a third. So if you're a parent, you always have the option for free. This is not Baltimore. I know tuition is never a problem in our community, but in other, in other places I'm told it is. He says, the, uh, these two, you can send your kid, you know, to the eighth grade here, whatever, for free. The third option, which is free, is you can go with the Haredi system, which goes Chinuch me and things like that. Which means if you wish to, you can send your daughter to Beis Yaakov, and it should be free. Okay? Because it's supposed to be sponsored by the government. You can send, you, um, you can send your kid to, uh, you know, a Chinuch school, which is a, a Haredi school, which will be very little secular studies of any. It's almost all Limudi Kodesh, as, as you know. That's what the parents want, and the government pay for it. It's free. Where did that come from? The answer, my friends, is it came from our period of 50 to 56, specifically with the uh, 1953 law called the Dinur Law, Benzin Dinur Law. What happened was, if you remember from last year, I'm relying on your memory, remember last year, Israel had a problem with the communists and the extreme socialists. Ben Gurion didn't like that. And remember I showed you last year the kibbutzim used to have the red flag and Stalin's picture everywhere and all that kind of stuff, and they did. So a lot of people, I mean, this was a key element. This, you, can laugh, you, can, you can laugh all you want, but it wasn't funny. Okay, I mean, you can live. And that was the communist part, and also the mapam. Was it mapam? Plus there were some others like that also. It was in that environment, okay, it was that environment that the consensus formed in the Mapai party, and in um, the general Zionist parties, even Bacon, that there should be no such thing as the current system. Where they used to have four, not three. What's the four? They had the religious, they had the super-religious, they had the secular, no, they had two secular. How do they have two secular parallel public schools? The other students, one is non-socialist, the other one's socialist. 
You get it? There was a socialist public school system, K through 12. And again, you, uh, certainly up to the eighth grade is free, and then afterwards you have to do whatever you do. And this is, wait a second, and this is, the, and, and uh, this was for decades, this is from the 20s. And um, the kibbutzim, for example, and also in Tel Aviv and places like that, they had schools that belonged to this zerem, as they call it, to this particular stream. And I'll say it again, here all the teachers and everybody were trained in Mapai and Mapam teacher schools, and uh, they want to advocate Chalutziyut, and they try to get the kids as much as, like, like in the from schools, they want the kids to go to yeshiva. In those days, they want the kids to go and be Avodah Chaklait. They want to go and work at a kibbutz and a moshav, and many did. Just to give you one example off the top of my head, Shimon Peres was in one of these uh, schools, and he was in the city in Tel Aviv, but because of, you know, all the uh, propaganda from the teachers, he went and he joined the kibbutz, uh, a small one in the, in the Galilee up there near the Kinneret in the 40s, and this was not atypical at all. As I said, under the politics at that time, Ben-Gurion particularly came to the point and been seeing the Nur and they said, this is wrong. It shouldn't be that you fly the red flag and it shouldn't be you have Stalin's picture, but you should have Chaim Weizen's picture up there or something like that. And so the result is that they uh, were able to pass a law which said that they're merging the two streams. So there's going to be one um, secular school system um, and each one will have equal representation, but the fact of the matter is it killed the socialist system. That's what happened. Okay? Lamaisa, what happened was it killed the socialist system. Within a two, three years, there were a lot of fights over it. There were kibbutzim that broke up over this issue. And it's a whole little parsha over there. I don't have time to go into. But the, by the time the smoke settled, the, uh, the dust settled, the, the uh, uh, fact is that the Chiloni system had one particular school. So that means there's one less of them in terms of, of, of funding. But they didn't insist that there should be one religious school. You know what I'm saying? They didn't insist that the Mizrahi and the Agoda join because that didn't have a chance of a snowball or whatever. So the result is, the result is they, they, they put it, well, you put up, and that wasn't even their main target. The main target was the socialist system. But who did it? So it hurt the number one uh, stream of education, which was militantly anti-religious. Consider all the Mapam schools that I just described before, which were strongly anti-religious, not just non-religious. And they're all killed by this. And second of all, the second thing that happens is that they recognized, after a lot of negotiations back and forth, that the Haredi system, the Chinuch as we call it today, independent education, should be a, 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 awarded not full government funding, but a lot of government funding. So as they got their full recognition as a separate stream. So what this guy ended up doing was shooting the, the secular in the foot because they provided the basis, financially and otherwise, for the rise of a religious and even a very religious school system affecting, since between then and today, I bet you a million kids. So it's not what they had in mind, but it's what happened. History is wonderful that way. In the years 52-56, in the early 50s, the Chinuch battle becomes a hallmark of the Israeli reality and remains so. And that's why you read in the paper, I'll just use two words, and you'll all immediately nod your heads. Ya'ir Lapid. What's that all about? They want to defund this, and want this, and too many religious schools, and, and so that, that, that's, that's, that's still going there. Um, the Mizrahi, the religious Zionist movement like the Catholic Church, competes across the board with the seculars. They have uh, K through high 12, you know, including high school. You have co-ed high schools. You have separate high schools, as well as college. They start Bar Ilan in 1950. And by 56, it's really something. Okay? And what's the idea? The seculars have the Hebrew University. We want to have a Dati University. Okay? Somebody should be able to go around and not feel bad. He's wearing a yarmulke or here the teachers in school make fun of religion. But that's a certain way of competing by, by, by as I said, like the Catholics. Making Notre Dame, making Fordham, making uh, Georgetown, 
You know, you make a parallel set of, of, of institutions. At the same time, in the Mizrahi world, in the religious Zionist world, particularly in the years 52-56, is the beginning of the move uh, among the young, some of the best and brightest, to the religious right. It starts at that time. Um, the founding of KBY, for example, in 1953, the Karen Yeshiva, very interesting. This means that for the first time, and I'll, I'll explain in a second, the religious Zionist movement said like this, they said, we need, we need a yeshiva that will be on the Ramah, on the level of the <coughs> Aguda yeshivas. Israel Goldwich, who was chosen to be the, the Mizrahi went and begged him. He said, please, we need, we need somebody of stature, be the Rashiva, and start here in Karen it didn't happen overnight. At the beginning, it was like a high school, but over, as, within a decade, I'd say, within 10, 15 years, it turned into the yeshiva that you're familiar with today. He was a Talmud of the Chazanish of the Briskarov. That's who he is. And by the way, he wasn't sure, should he take this job or not? Because he was a black hatter, still a black hatter. And here, the Mizrahi saying, we want you to come and take over here. Chazanish said, do it. The Briskarov said, don't do it. He did it. That, 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 that's what happened. That's what happened. And by the way, he was their main figure for 40 years, I think, or something like that, until he passed away not that long ago. He's a great Talmud, Chachmah, the resident. He never was in favor of the Hezder. It's funny. The Rashiva of the main yeshiva, who, who you think of KBY, that's the Hezder yeshiva, he always said that this, Anachna lo yeshiva Hezder, Anachna yeshiva im Hezder. You understand? In other words, it's the yeshiva, and they also have this other program, which means that the religion Zionist movement in choosing him and building this up was making a, a statement in terms of moving to the right. Okay? Although, not in terms of a black hat and all that. See, culture, culture, culture. You see? We wanted to be with the kippah through God and all the rest of it. But they want, that should be serious learning as the expression goes. Um, they, they do this by the 50s uh, to compete with the brain drain to the Haredi yeshivas. Uh, because by that time the Panovich had already set up Panovich and schools like Panovich are, are, are um, attracting the kids from the Mizrahi high schools, and they don't like that. Uh, the Haredi high school teachers in the Mizrahi schools are influencing the kids to go to Haredi yeshivas. Uh, here, as you know, Shach, for a short time, he taught in one of the Mizrahi high schools for a meal, until the Chazanish said, get out of there and go somewhere else. But, uh, but, but if people like Roshach were doing, you can imagine, for each person like him who got yanked down and put somewhere else, there were 100, there were 200, 300, of people from Mir and from Kletzk and from this and that and the other, they came, like happened in the United States of America, correct? Where, in no matter how, what the high school is, but the Rebbe is a real black hatter, as they say over here, and so it could be that it's a religious Zionist high school, but what's he telling the boys? He says, you, but you wonder what the real thing is, you have to go for a year or two to a real place, you know, go to Hebron, go to Parnavis or something like that. And therefore the movement is like, we have to set up KBY, we have to, we have to, we have to compete, you see? So this kind of uh, dynamic is really, Interesting. Originally, originally, uh, before the war, the big shots in the Mizrahi movement were opposed to yeshivas, as they correctly feared that it would lead the movement to the right, which is not really where they wanted to be. The uh, leadership of the Mizrahi movement historically, what you, uh, what they call in America, centrist orthodox. You get it? You know, don't dream me a cup about the covering the hair and the this and the, you know, just, just be really, just be Shomer Shabbos and keep kosher and all, you know, the, 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 don't, don't do Mishagasin. Yeah, right? And that's really where, and, and they were always afraid, and correctly so, the yeshiva was lead. That's the reason why somebody like Rav Zevin, if you've heard of him, one of the great, uh, geniuses of the 20th century, uh, and he was the biggest gun, in my opinion, in the Mizrahi movement. Uh, he made the Sagabi Talmudid, and all these other, it was a, a, a huge genius. Never could get a job in yeshiva, because the Mizrahi didn't have any yeshivas. Rav Zevin came in 1934, I think, 
and he used to teach in the Mizrahi Teacher Seminary in Jerusalem. So it's called Zokin Vainalofikhvada, meaning there was no position that was Matim for somebody like him in the time that he was there. And now in the fifties they're they're trying to change that through the creation of new institutions. It's just a very interesting process. But already in nineteen thirty nine, the head of the Bene Akiva said at that time, we're losing kids to other movements when they grow up, meaning they're going to the left. You can say, we don't want yeshivas, and it'll be too frumak and all the rest of it, but Rav Neria, already in the late 30s, said, the kids get to a certain point, and they join the Mapai or the Mapam, or those youth movements, or whatever, they join the kibbutz, we're losing them, and consequently, he already said, in 1939, we need to have a yeshiva of some kind, that's why he started Kfaharoeh. But that really didn't turn into any kind of a strong yeshiva. It was more like a high school, you know, and what they call the Tichon system, where they set up what we call the American yeshiva high schools, which is, you know, partially there. But like I say, then any kid who's good in the learning says, and what comes after this? You see, so they wanted to create some... It's a whole long process. Obviously, I can't do justice to it, but I think I'm giving you the basic idea. By the early 50s, they perceived that they need a higher standard of yeshiva with which to compete and create a, create, create a new kipas ruga talmid chacham reality. Right? What's the difference if a guy wears a kipas ruga or wears a black hat? Culture is everything. And so therefore, they moved to Merkaz Rav Cook. And the, that, by the way, Merkaz Rav Cook starts to become a serious place in the 50s also. Uh, in, in general, it's, it's the oldest line in market economics. Competition has a powerful reality, doesn't it? Okay? When you have the competition out there, both sides have to scramble to keep up with the Joneses. Um, on the other hand, it's also true that they were founding, the, uh, as I said before, the Bar-Ilan University. Dr. Horgan, if anybody's old enough to remember, was, ran YU, for the, the Hebrew uh, program in YU for, for decades. Dr. Pinchas Horgan. And he was what you would call a centrist, uh, you know, Mizrahist. And he, he's the one who came to Israel and made the Bar-Ilan University. And there was a time in the 30s and 40s he controlled all the teacher appointments across the United States in the religious schools. You see? Uh, Rabbi Dr. Pinchas Horgan. And, uh, like, you know, from that, from that world. So, so which is it? The religious Zionist movement, therefore, is, is showing two fa- right and to the left. Right? They're, 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 they're creating new realities to the right and, and, and to the left. Because, because Bar-Ilan is going to be a university that's going to move things to the left. You see, everything has to do with power uh, struggles, and um, if you create a university and then all the professors and the historians and the others think they know more than the rabbi, they're going to try to, to, to dominate the culture. If you have a shiva, then they don't have any time for that. They want the rabbis to dominate the culture. And so Mizrahi movement will be faced in the second half of the 20th century with the fights they go on even today over, you know, who's the top position and who, and who controls. As far as the other set of religious communities in Israel, the Haredim, as we call them today, is concerned, the years of 1952 to 56 were years of dramatic consolidation, crystallization of institutions and sociological trends that would play out under every expert's radar screen over the next half century as we know today. All of a sudden they say, whoa, there's a million Hasidim, there's a million Haredim, and the school's over the place, and they're taking over the country. This has been happening, my friends, since the 50s, but, you know, since we're very slow... So nobody ever paid attention. You look at the sociology books written in the 60s and 70s, they hardly ever mention these things. Just as in the United States of America, if you look at the federations, the associates, all the rest of it, they never mention these things. And then they wake up one day and they say, a third of the Jews in Baltimore are Orthodox, three quarters of the kids, uh, high school kids in New York are Orthodox, the Hasidic, whatever, the Pew Report, and all the rest of it. Then all of a sudden they say, whoa, 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 you know, where, where, did all, where did this all come from? In the case of Israel, it's a very interesting story, obviously, 
you're dealing with the Lithuanian yeshivas, because that's what I'm talking about. The 50s is the era of the consolidation of uh, what we call the literature yeshivas. The yeshivas, of course, Lithuanian yeshivas is a phenomenon. There have been yeshivas throughout Jewish history, but there's a very specific type called the Lithuanian yeshiva, which arose in the 1800s and the late 1800s and early 1900s. And um, uh, the Slobodka yeshiva, I'm sure you've heard of that, is the Slobodka yeshiva uh, moved to Palestine in the 1920s, okay, 1925. This is the altar of Slobodka, Moshe Mordech Epstein. They, you know, they picked that up and they called it the Hebron yeshiva, right, because they moved to Hebron, right? Now, why did they move to Hebron? Why don't you move to Jerusalem? Fascinating story. It's a culture clash. Uh, the Litvish Yeshiva in the 1920s was this, in its European fashion plate heyday versus Mayish Aram. Okay? If, I'm sure you've seen the pictures, and, but I'm going to show you a few. I'm showing the pictures of the fact that this has to do with the Alter Slobok. This has to do with the fact that in Europe, before the First World War around that time, the, the, there was a culture of contempt for people who were learning yeshivas. They said, why don't you join the revolutionary movements or do, become a bourgeois? Or just, what are you sitting time, wasting your time and learning? And, and uh, one of the reactions to this, in the Swain, especially in Tells and Sabotka, was they wanted to, you know, everybody should look very dignified and look very bourgeois and, you know, have a cane and, and dress right and all the rest of the show. See, we're, we're quote-unquote normal. And so the heyday of this was the 20s, the 20s and the 30s. And here come guys dressed like this, into Meisharim, okay? I don't know if you can see over here, this guy over here, this is great, this is Hebron. These are guys in Hebron. This guy has a three-colored shirt. Imagine this today, thing with a white uh, thing and a two-toned shoes, and, I mean, this is, and, and one of those straw hats. I mean, he is Mr. The Dapper Din, you know? <laughs> he's, 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 look, he's looking to get into a fashion contest. Can you imagine somebody walking in Shiva like that now? Okay? Now, this is the point. Look, look, at, this, look at these guys over here. This one has a beard because he's... He's older and married. Nobody here has a beard. This guy doesn't even have a yarmulke. He's got a, a big head of hair. His, maybe you've heard him. His name is Hutner. <laughs> okay? This one. Now, mind you, let me, let, me, let me balance out the equation. Each of these guys can wipe the floor with anybody else in learning. That's the one. So they come to Yerushalayim in the 1920s, and it's cognitive dissonance. They don't know, the Mayor Sharm doesn't know what to, to make of this. Because to them, a key part of being a religious Jew is you dress the dress, you look the look, and all the rest of it. And here come these guys. They have the, the hair is crazy, the coat is crazy. Um, and there is a famous story that Rabbi Rudiman went to visit. Who, who was dressed like this old? Went to visit the Chabad Chaim, and the Chabad Chaim said, get rid of that red tie. You understand? <laughs> Meaning, it has to do with, I told you before, culture, culture, culture. Does that have to do with the fact this one knows how to learn? That? They all know how to learn. But boy, this was the elite. Okay? When Slobodka and these places, this is the elite of the learning world. But they looked funny. And therefore, very early on, Moshe Mordechai Epstein, the Alts we're not staying in Meisharim and Yerushalayim because they're going to throw stones at us. They started already. And they put, pan, you know, they put the, what do you call them, the Pashkvil in and all the well. And so they moved to Hebron, okay, for a couple of years until the Arabs, until the Arabs k- killed them. But wait a second. I'm just trying to show you how this starts, okay? But these are the real dandies. Uh, I mean, look at the negative. Here's the altar of Slobok at the beach in Tel Aviv, Okay? <laughs> And then, you know, to somebody from Meisharim, it doesn't. You know, what are you even going within a hundred miles of Tel Aviv for? It's like one of the last places at the beach, and so forth. And then, you know, now by the way, he's, he's, he's not in a bathing suit or anything like that, you know, <laughs> right? Fully clothed. But the very fact that somebody goes there to get, and, and I'll tell you again, it's called. You know why? You know why? In Yerushalayim, in the Yeshiva Yashan, 
going to the beach is uh, you know totally unheard of. In Lithuania, everybody, including the Yeshiva world, goes to Palangan, as they used to call it. They used to go to, to, to Atlantic City or whatever it was over there. Um, in, in the Benazmanim, as they call it, you know, in the summer, when it was hot. It's a culture, right? It's a culture thing. Now, um, that's why it's so interesting. But I can just tell you, this caused the cognitive dissonance with the next group. This is what you're supposed to look like in the 1920s. If you were, that's what a firm Jew is supposed to look like. Who did, these people look like Goyim, right? And, but it doesn't make sense. If they were not religious Jews, no. But this guy knows the Ketos by heart, you know? And this one knows the Raja. And if you start, you know, talking to them and learning, they can destroy you. And so, so, so it, 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 it caused a, um, what shall I say, a radical uh, short circuit in the culture. Okay. I told you it's going to be interesting tonight. Now, um, uh, after the riots, you all know that the Arabs go into rioting and they kill a lot of people in the Chevron Yeshiva and all of the Jews. So the Chevron Yeshiva has to go back, no choice, to Geula, right? Where, uh, meanwhile, the Lumsher Yeshiva had moved from uh, uh, Poland. It's another Lithuanian Yeshiva to Palestine at that time, to Petach Tikva. Here's the, uh, some of the poor. These are the ones who survived. By the way, he's not got a full head of hair. But, you know, they, uh, there's all the terrible pictures. I don't want to share that with you. But, you know, the Arabs were, were uh, uh, vicious in the rise of 1929, is what it is. Um, and there you have it. Now, the dress and the, you know, externals go with a certain culture. Prior to 48, a school like Hebron, which is in Yerushalayim, and then Lamsha, the, the, the Lithuanian that are there, now Lithuania, they carry the ethos, the cultural ethos of the Lithuanian yeshiva, which is pure Lithuanian alumnus, right? In other words, who you are is not defined by the externals, but it's defined despite the externals. You get it? Uh, to, to be from is looked down upon if you're talking about externals. This is, has to do with the Muster movement. It's a long discussion, but it's very interesting. The old expression in Lithuania is from is a galach, id davzain erlach. You understand? Which means that you know, from pious, that we expect from a, a Catholic priest. We expect for you to be honest. You see? You know, to have integrity. And that's not something you wear with the scissors outside. And that's not something you wear with a black uh, bekesha or something like that. But that's who you are. So it's a, certain, it's a certain way of doing it. I want to remind you, this is the golden age of the Muslim movement in, 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 in these yeshivas. And so the Bachar's individual proclivities are his private business up to a certain point. So if you were in, um, we treat the student in yeshiva like an adult. And, you know, you have your own privacy, you have you know, this, and that, we, we, it's an honor system. We, we expect, and what you do, you know, as long as you put in your, let's put it this way, you put in your 18 hours of day of learning, so what you do in the rest of the time is like your business. You can laugh, but I, but I don't mean it to be funny, right? And, and look, you had communist sympathizers there. You could have people there in Hebron, in Hebron Yeshiva, in the 30s, and the 40s, I'll show you in, you had people who all are in learning, and they're, they have avads, and they can talk in learning, and this and that and the other, but this guy supports the Irgun, and this one's for the Haganah, this one's, like I say, sympathize with the Communist Party, because after all, they're going to redistribute the wealth, and, you know, and that's the only way to bring social justice in the world. And you ask me a question, how can a guy like that give a Chabura, you know, and they think you can? Uh, I mean, the, the world is there. Let's take a look at the next picture. I mean, this guy is a communist. <laughs> I'll tell you right now. now. I mean, I know he is. The, uh, uh, here you have everybody in the straw hats. So, uh, it's, it's the man Sharm doesn't know what to do with it. Okay, so this is part of the reality that's there for the for the twenties and, and the thirties. Um, the Rosh Hashiva there was Cheskel Sarna after Moshe Mordechai died, a very famous person, and he he really 
pushed this ethos until his death in 1969, which is you have to treat the people as they've been in Lithuania, you have to treat them like adults. You stand and give them all the respect that goes along with that. And therefore, you had a very much a policy of a certain don't ask, don't tell what people have with their private hashkabas on the side. Uh, here you have, for example, Rav Herzog, who sent both of his sons to the Chemri Shiva in the 30s. Now, I'm not talking about today, I'm talking about the 30s. Sent them both in the 30s. One is Yaakov and one is Esau. You understand? In other words, this one turned out to be not religious. This one ended up being religious. Yaakov Herzog became Ben Gurion's personal secretary, if you remember. I spoke about it in the past. One of Israel's foremost diplomats, but 100% of Shemr Shabbos, a big Talmud Chachmi, at Smicha, from Mr. Zalman Meltzer, he has a Pirish on Zeroim, and all these sorts of things. And this one, who was a general, he became, <laughs> he, he became an officer. He wasn't really religious. I mean, when he was home, he didn't smoke, and that, and that sort of thing. But, uh, no, I mean, you know, but that, that's what it was. And both went to the same yeshiva, but like I told you before, one goes this way, and one goes this way. And this was not at all atypical in the 30s and the 40s. This is the culture I'm trying to get across over here. There were no black hats in those days, um, literally. You know, I mean, if you take a look at all the pictures, it's, it's the golden era of my youth is all gray hats. Remember <laughs> that, that sort of thing. And um, anyway, that's one piece of the pie, because this will go on, come important, more and more important as the 40s and the 50s and the 60s go go by. The Chavon Shiva is still there, uh, going strong till today. Um, however, there's a second dynamic occurring in Palestine, uh, not identical with the Slobodka tells a mere dynamic, and here I'm referring to the phenomenon of the Chazanish. Okay? Here, let's take a look at this for a second. We have a rare case. We have a video of the Chazanish. I think this is the only one uh, from the, uh, shortly before his death. He's going to a bar mitzvah, I think, or something like that. That's him in Bnei Brak. He's around 1950, 51. Now, the, 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 in the Chazanish, as far as the point I want to get across is like this. He didn't approve of Dapper Dan. <laughs> you understand? The Chazanish uh, advocated a selective appropriation of Hasidic culture, particularly in the externals. You see? He said, I'm not a Hasid, I don't go to a Rebbe, but they're right with the black hat, they're right with the Bekisha, they're right with growing a beard, all these other things that Lithuania Yeshivas are doing. I don't totally approve of them. No, I don't approve of them. And, you know, he wasn't violent or anything, but nevertheless, the whole cultural stance he, he, he projects is one in which these things are not really true to from Judaism. Okay? They may be explained by what was going on in Lithuania in the 1920s or something like that, but it's not really, and it shouldn't be an Eretz Israel. You see? So he wants to move everything like in this kind of direction, to use simple words from a gray hat to a black hat. Okay? Now, um, the idea of rejecting European fashion gets a lot of traction in the wake of the Shoah. I mean, who are you trying to impress? And whose culture are you trying to copy? Uh, France, England, Germany? You know what these countries are. You know, they're all behemoths. Look what they did to the six million Jews. This is a culture? It's not a culture. So who are trying to kiss up to? Who are trying to imitate? You can, you can see that Bachram, the young people, w- w- would say, yeah, you know, he, he's right about that. You can hear it. Um, there's a move to the right as far as base Yaakov movements that are set up now from now on are concerned. There's much less Sanserinful Hirschism and much more Chazonishism. That's the story of the transfer of base Yaakov movement from Europe to uh, Israel. When it was in Europe in the time of Sar Schneer, for example, 95% of the curriculum was Hirsch. Okay? And when it comes to Israel, they, they, they do away with that pretty quickly. Okay? And it becomes something, as I say, to use again, an expression that would be easier for you to understand, comes more yeshivish. Uh, there's certainly a lot less of the ethos of Yavna that doesn't survive in Israel at all. 
Yavne, for those who don't know what I'm talking about, was um, the it was the Beis Yaakov movement in Lithuania. They didn't call it Beis Yaakov; they called Yavne. That's why Tells has the high school, you know, the the seminary Yavne. They still keep it up. They haven't dropped the name. But if you went back to Lithuania and Latvia um, in the 1920s and the 30s, um, you'd find under the influence of this man, uh, uh, Rabbi Karlbach, who later was the uh, the uh, chief rabbi of Hamburg, a very famous Rabbi Yosef Karlbach. Uh, he went in the First World War, and afterwards, uh, this kind of picture, you're not going to find the Beis Yaakov movement anymore, because he's a teacher surrounded by all the girls. But nevertheless, they set up gymnasium and high schools on a high level. And um, yeah, this is where the Rosh Hashiva's daughters went in the 1920s and 30s for the war, and they prided themselves on having an excellent Limude Kodesh program, but also an excellent Limude Chol program, with equal emphasis on both. Uh, there's, there's articles on this. And that's, you know, the Chazan Nation not interested in that at all. And that does not transfer over to Eretz Yisrael. Because that's, again, whose culture you're trying to impress or, or, or copy. What's, what's the point? We need more Yiddishkeit, as the expression would go. Um, there's certainly a move to the right under the influence of Chazan In terms of Chumras, uh, here's the iconic picture of the three participants in the famous battles over the Shiurim. How big is the Matzah? How big is the Becher? To use it at the Seder play. And, and, and all that sort of things is the Chazanishes of Avram Chaim Noah, who, by the way, it's funny, I mean, he was from Meisharim. So he is advocating the old measurements, which are smaller, because he said, this is what we've been, this is what my Bubby did, this is what my Zadie did, my great grandparents did, and we've all lived in Meisharim, place like that, you know, for centuries. And the Chazanish is representing the new look, which is, let's re examine the Sugya and see what we come up with. And, um, you know, your, your, your measurements are not, uh, large enough. And so, for, which become the new ethos in there. By the way, the Chazanish's brother-in-law, the famous Stabler, going is a big participant in these back and forth. It gets pretty dirty. You know, if you read the literature back and forth, then they call each other names and so forth. It's it's uh, it's plagiarism. It's all kind of things because you're talking about huge cultural changes. Even though to the outsider, it's not part of this world, they would have no idea. They say, oh, "Who cares how big the becher is?" But you're making big cultural statements over there, and he did. Chazanish's not a fighter. It's not who it was, but he said, "This is my opinion." And I'm just uh, putting it out there on, on print. But I can tell you, by the time you get to the years, 52, 56, this is sweeping the Shiva world, as they call it, in Eretz Yisrael, which is going to be a profound effect, um, you know, elsewhere as well. On the other hand, I do want to point out that the Chazanish and that whole movement has a very pragmatic, as opposed to a dogmatic, attitude toward Medina Yisrael. There's all the difference in the world. Now, both of these men were ultra, ultra, ultra. But look at the difference in the world as far as the Medina Yisrael goes. The Sam Rebbe leaves Palestine and won't go there precisely because the very existence of a state of Israel is the work of the devil. I mean, that literally, the Sitra Achra. It's, it's, it's just the most horrible thing in the world. And the Chazoni said like this, it's terrible, it's this, now another, yes it is, and now let's see what we can build here. You see, so it's, it's very interesting that, you know, in some things they're very machmer, and other things, uh, differently. It's, uh, it, it's, it's, the fifties are, see, a, a remarkable, a bunch of opinions. This is all intensified by the arrival in Israel in the 40s of the Panavizharov. Okay? Uh, the legendary Rabbi Kahaneman, I think he's the next one, is that right? Yeah. Uh, who who's, was the rabbi in, in Panavish in Lithuania and uh, uh, built a whole you know, empire there that was all killed by the Germans. And as everybody knows, he came to Israel with nothing. He was in depression, clinical depression, for about a year and a half, two years. And then he got himself out of it and he started rebuilding. Uh, in the middle of the war, okay, in the middle of the war, it's, it's, it's quite amazing. Panavisharov um, actually represents a new model in many ways. 
He was the rabbi from 1920 in Punovich, who was one of the very important communities in Lithuania. I can tell you right now, and I'll show you pictures later, Punovich was a left-wing community, their Klal, meaning by that time, the Haskalah, the uh, socialism, the Zionism, and all the rest of it, very strongly entrenched in Punovich. Uh, so he was going against the trend, particularly, he was in the Aguda. He was one of the big makers in the Aguda. And uh, the community was overwhelmingly, like I say, the Bundists, the Yiddishists, the socialist Zionists, uh, you know, these, all, all these different types of groups, the general Zionists, the Rajabatinsky, and so on and so on, very little of the Agoda in there. Um, so he knows that in the regular politics that we talk about, the, the big happy fighting family, you're not going to get any kind of serious funding for what he'd like to happen. So he said, I guess I don't need to go there. I'll, go, I'll hit the road, and I go to other Jewish communities, and I raise the money on my own. Uh, he discovers a great principle of the 20th century, which is, if you get the money, you don't have to care what anybody else says. Right? You, can't, you, put, you put your own million dollars together, and you can tell everybody else where to go. That's interesting. And so he first he came to America, then I'm sure you know, he went to South Africa, where he struck it rich, and then he went to, to Argentina, all the places where there are Lithuanian Jews. You see? And there he's able to, as a writer, but to, to play on the heartstrings of the uh, traditionalism, which he did very successfully, um, his message is very simple. You may not be a Shomashad, but you want that there should be something like this in the world. And, uh, oh my God, he's legendary. And I would say the 50s, the late 40s and the 50s were the heroic era of the Pontevision Road, when he went around the world and raised a ton of money. Uh, went from Los Angeles to Cape Town to Singapore to I don't know where. Uh, but it's quite amazing. And that way, in his own uh, city in Panovich, he can say, you do whatever you want. I'm raising the money from Chutzlar, so to speak, and I can build whatever I want. That's how he built a large yeshiva, an entire K-12, through what we would call today a TA and a Beis Yaakov, and all the rest of it. He purchased in Panovich, the city of Panovich, what we would call today, I mean this, the Northwest High School. Is that a big piece of territory? With the big buildings and all the rest of it? He had a Polish gymnasium, and there's a huge sort of thing. A lady named Mrs. Nathan Fagan from Philadelphia gave him $35,000 in 1928, I think it was. And uh, I saw the uh, contract or something, and it said like this. They're going to use this to build a whole thing in Panovich. When one day we make Aliyah, because they're already thinking at that time, we're going to sell this building, we're going to move to Israel, we're going to build the building over there, and still we're going to call it Mrs. Nathan Fagan building. Okay, so I just want you to know that the name will, will be there. Um, so anyway, this is what it is. Um, although, like I said, he's a pillar of the Agoda, uh, but he doesn't want to run for the Knesset. Uh, that's famous, they asked him. He was the most experienced parliamentarian in the Agoda party because he had been in the Lithuanian parliament back in Lithuania in the 1920s. It's interesting. In the 1920s, uh, the Mizrahi and the Agoda joined together in a common political party called Achva against the non-religious. And he was one of the big machers and that sort of thing. So he had an unusual career. But he doesn't want to be identified with a party over here. You see, because that's counter to what he... He wants to build the yeshiva. You follow? There's a famous joke they tell. I don't know, it, it might be true, it might not be true, but it doesn't matter. They asked him, he said, why don't you want to run in the Knesset in 1949? He says, I'm not a millionaire. They said, it's got nothing to do with, you know, we, we, you get a salary. He said, you don't understand. The halacha is every time you hear blasphemy, you have to tear your clothes. You understand? <laughs> so I mean, every minute in the Knesset, they're going to be, you know... So, he starts the yeshiva in December of 43. You know, he was sick in bed, and he told Shmuel Rizovsky, he said, you take 10 guys, go into this uh, hut, and, start, and, and, and just start. You know, that's what I mean. He started even, uh, by the mid-50s, 
Yeshiva is meant to be about 150. Tell me, it's not the point of Yeshiva today at all, but it's, 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 it's on, the, on the way. Okay, 150, 175 students. He's willing to take people from around the world. Um, and you see the beginnings, especially in the years 52, 56, of a, of a pattern of steady growth. Slow but steady growth. Right? It doesn't transform overnight, but it's always going up. You understand? Um, the point of Yisharov, he always said like this, the Chazanish is my guide. When the Chavaz Chaim was alive, I followed him, whatever he said, and I followed the Chazanish. That means he's not going to be interested in, in Dapper Dan. You know, he's not going to be interested in, in two-tone shoes and white this and all the rest. And the whole ethos of the Chevron didn't appeal to him. He wants a yeshiva, uh, and he got one, yeshiva where there's a shear, not just people don't go, and where uh, there's what you call in, in Saisanud, with obedience, you know, the yeshiva gives rules, and the boys obey, um, there's a very strong staff, and, uh, you know, everything is run with a discipline. On the other hand, he will provide. You know, he, he'll, work, he'll work his head off, which he did do, to make sure that they have the wherewithal to make it, to make it happen. So, uh, as I say before, I found online, you can find anything now, I have a, a small piece to show you, um, which I'll show you in a second. Let me just give you, by way of introduction, this is obviously from 19... I can tell you it's before 1951. I'll tell you why in a second. So it's from 4950 or 51, and they're building the first of his set of institutions, which he called the orphanages, the Bate Avot, right? When he, he took a lot of the kids from the Shoah, okay? Which was a tough thing to do. Um, I'll just tell you one example. These kids would get off and they put them in yeshiva. First thing they do with that night is steal all the food from the kitchen because that's how you survived under Hitler. If you, if, if you don't develop those kind of uh, talents, you can't make it, right? And the cooks are complaining and the Pandavish says, let them alone, it'll take them a month or two until they see they don't have to, the food will be there anyway in the morning. But you have to go with where they are. So he was a very smart person in this regard, you understand? He said, for girls also, you know, male uh, orphans from the war, female from the war, and, um, and he was very successful in this. And, and then, after he set this all up, he'll end up building the big, huge yeshiva that, um, that we're familiar with today, if you've ever been in B'nai Brock, you have an idea what I'm talking about. And you'll see over here, he got some group from uh, Brooklyn. I think it was Brooklyn. Uh, I don't know if it's a religious group at all, but that's not the point. They're helping war orphans. And they have the American ambassador, um, James Grover McDonald, Truman's ambassador, the first one to Israel, who was a great... It was, a, it was just not common. He was somebody who was not Jewish at all, and he really liked Jews a lot, which is most unusual, right? Bissel Meshuggah. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and he comes and gives the whole speech. I'm the, it's just the video, not the audio. But, uh, but you'll see the whole, whole thing over there. And, what's the, and you'll see uh, Moshe, uh, Chaim Moshe Shapiro, the head of the Mizrahi, the Minister of the Interior, because there's not a Miflag T, there's not a party thing, there's not about the Aguda, you're just building up Torah. The message he gets across, he's pretty successful at it. Here, let's see the, the segment that we have. See, what they vote Goodwill Welfare League in Brooklyn for Mrs. Mickey Levin. <laughs> and here's from Los Angeles. This is, uh, I think, Rav Herzog or Rav Unterman. I can't remember. Can, yeah. That's, most, that's the head of the Mizrahi Chaim Shapiro. That's Ambassador McDonald. Putting, you know, <laughs> There's a pun of Isharaf with Magdalene McDonald. I'm sure they had a lot to talk about. <laughs> and here he is with the, uh, with the lady in charge of the Brooklyn operation, and she's going to lead all the orphans in a march. That's, what's interesting, you know, to see the Israel of old, if you want to do it, but we don't have that kind of time. The, uh, the bottom line is that uh, he, um, everything that you're seeing over here, and the empire he's is going to create a new sociological reality. 
of a sudden you're going to have a large Haredi world when it never existed before. But it's, it's, it's very uh, slow over here. B'nai Brak, as I told you before, will be a very different community than Panovich in Lithuania, which these are all secular groups, as you see over here. You know, these are uh, non-religious and even anti-religious high school, Jewish, Ivrit, and Yiddish uh, back over there. Here in, in, in Panovich now, the students will grow beards, they'll dress more and more Haredi, even as they develop the literature, Shiva, Lambdas, and all the rest of it. Panovich will develop a high level of the learning, but there'll be more obedience the mashkiach will be somebody with a powerful uh, influence in everybody, all that sort of thing. These yeshivas plus the mir yeshiva in Jerusalem, which moves there after the Holocaust, are all small, but they're not tiny in the years 52 to 56, but a number of specific Israeli factors favor their future growth and expansion. First of all, they're dynamic and charismatic in a, stale, a world of stale traditionalism. By that time, the regular shuls and the regular Orthodox Judaism was uh, passe and stale, and people don't really keep things, and, you know, the rabbis have to make in uh, one concession after another, and it's compromises, and uh, it ain't going anywhere. And the yeshiva, if you buy into it, is dynamic, and it's growing, and it's going to create a new world, and, and it calls for sacrifice on the part of the children. Uh, they're free from the draft, okay? It was already in 50 and 51 that Shimon Peres, have you ever heard of him, was the mankal at that time, the age of 28, 29, um, in, in, under Ben-Gurion, he was the number two in the defense department. It's incredible. He had his power. And he's the one that cut the deal that the Shiva boys are free from the draft. This is Paris's family back in Lithuania with his religious grandfather. Shimon Paris is a great, great descendant, a descendant of Chaim of Voloshin, the founder of the first Lithuanian Yeshiva. So he, he's a direct descendant. So it's, you know, it's funny the way these things go. And after all, how many boys were you talking about at that time? It wasn't a large number. And there it went. So that's an important factor in there also. I would point out that Israel in 48 actually had what's called religious brigade, the Gedutuvia. Let's go to the next one. Yeah. Over here. For a while during the siege of Jerusalem, when the Jordanians were right there, all the yeshivas had lotteries and they chose, I mean, even the Satmar yeshiva in 48, the boys should do digging and things like this on the, um, the battlements against the Jordanians when things were tough. But they didn't want to, they viewed that as Yotzim and Aklal. They viewed it as exceptional circumstances. And when the war is over, they didn't want to do that anymore. And they, as, as, as I said, they were able to make a deal that they're free. So that's a, that's a big push to go into the yeshiva. Third, they're getting government funding, small at first, but formalized at the elementary level for boys, and even at the high school level when it comes to base alcohol for girls, something that never happened in history. Here's by Levin, Yubichemar Levin, from, from the uh, Agoda Yisrael party in the Knesset. He's the brother-in-law of the Ger Rebbe. What is the reason the Agoda is in the party? Why didn't the Ben-Gurion's government? Because they're getting money for these institutions, which they realize is something that could never occur in Poland, it could never occur in Lithuania, it certainly can't occur in the United States with the separated church in Israel, but in Israel, under a, a non-religious, anti-religious government, you know, uh, anything is possible, as they say in Yiddish, that the good Lord wants it, even a, a broom can shoot. So, that's what happens over there. The rise of the female base Yaakov teacher as a government employee makes possible the rise of Kolel, even though they didn't realize it. Because you marry somebody, if she's teaching in the growing and expansion system, you get a government salary, you get government benefits, the kupat cholim, and you get a pension, all the rest of it, all of a sudden, she's a man, so he doesn't have to work. That's not what Ben Gurion necessarily had in mind, but that's what they set up over there. Fourth, the Israeli welfare state. Remember? How much was a loaf of bread? Yeah, nickel. Okay? And how much was the, was the milk? We all remember this, right? Yeah, dime. In other words, the, the government super subsidized the food and things like that. The rents were small. This, the, the, it's going to sound funny, but a Marxist social welfare state is kind of ideal for the kolel. <laughs> you see? Because of, of price controls. You see? 
Um, fifth, the failure of the Israeli secular culture to fulfill its utopian promise with the rise of the state. I mean, does anybody know who any of these people are? They were big deals once upon a time. Yeah, this is A.B. Yoshua, this is Nathan Alterman, this is Hugo Bergman. Exactly, nobody knows what I'm talking about, that's my point. All right? These are the big machers, uh, wait, these are the big machers of the Israeli culture who in Israel got traction, got traction, but nothing outside of Israel. Israel didn't turn into this Athens as a secular culturist had envisioned, like Hanam said, that it'll be, we'll produce our own Shakespeare's and our own Goethe's and we'll have a thing that it's not just local, but it'll be international in scope and it will wow the world with the Jewish genius in a secular sense. The Jewish genius and this will attract people to the power of Judaism totally bereft from religion. You had a local culture, you had a, a, uh, like every country in the world. The Portuguese have writers, there's nothing to write home about, you understand? And, uh, you know, Bulgaria has writers and all sorts of things. It it didn't become a wow thing. And so it was nothing really to attract anybody as something super amazing. And that's the way, uh, you know, the Israeli culture has evolved so far. And as a result, it's not that much of a competition with, with, with the Torah, let's put it that way. There's no institution in, in, in religious society that can compete with the yeshiva by this time because the synagogues, the youth groups, all the rest of it are into compromises, into, you know, the learning level is very low, the shmirat mitzvah's level is very low. It is what it is. Um, and plus, to add one more piece to this, this is also the period when the Hasidim arrive in Israel. Because after, you know, after 48, there's no more this party, uh, you know, Gucci uh, Aliyah. Every Jew has a right on Chok HaShvut, you know, no matter what he or she looks like, to come to Israel. And they do after the Shoah. Uh, the, the Rebbe's, the big ones, like the Belzer Rebbe, the Ger Rebbe's, this the old one, this the, the one that comes after him, they come over there, and they're very smart, they concentrate on corporatism, and on avoiding fights with the non-religious. The old Belzer Rebbe, the old Ger Rebbe's, and all the Ger even today, they say, don't go make protests, don't fight with anything, get your institutions, Built up the schools, built the yeshivas, built the basiaka, built the neighborhoods and all the rest of it, and let time take its course, you understand? Let demography, if you wish, take its course, which it has in 60 years, has it not? Okay, it's created an entire Hasidic world in Israel. Ben-Gurion perceives the beginnings of this trend already in the early 50s. He could see that. And it's brought to his attention by the issue of drafting the girls. Because when they tried to issue a law to draft females along with men, so all the Haredim, all hell broke loose, and in New York, they burned the flag, and Israel made Hafka note, and he saw that this is something they really feel strongly about, and like, who is this group, and what's going on over here? He wants, Ben-Gurion wants, because he was a statesman, all the Jews in Israel, or as many as possible, to accept the state as legitimate. He wanted the Torah character to be marginalized, and he was successful in this, okay? This has always been, always been, the policy of the Israeli government. You can't shoot them, so you have to marginalize them, make them that they're an extreme that nobody pays attention to Ben-Gurion perceives the game of the, the, the Chazanish and the others as to accept the state pragmatically, but not in principle. If you ask the Chazanish or the, or the Haredim, is the state of Israel a legitimate state? No. Now that it's here, what are you supposed to do? We have to cooperate with it. But he bothered him that they didn't see the state of Israel, which is a secular entity, which is therefore a non-fundamentalist entity. He doesn't believe in God and all the rest of it. He can't accept that, and that bothered Ben-Gurion very much. He figured he could thrash things out with the Chazanish, in conversation one-to-one, reached some kind of a contract. And so he went very famously in 52 to visit the Chazon Ish. It didn't work out. It's very famous. 
Chalishtim didn't really want to get in the conversation in the first place. And then when it was, uh, yeah, as it's famous, you know, you can't believe half what you say because, uh, you know, once something happens, the room, you know, they, 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 they build it up in stories that comes one after the other. But there's a famous story that they tell, which is that he told Ben-Gurion, you have an empty ship and we have a full ship. And when it's two ships are clashing, the ship that has nothing in it has to make room for, it, for, for the full ship. Which means that all of the secular Zionism and all of Israel is an empty ship and the yeshivas are the full ship. Maybe he said that, maybe he didn't say it, but he certainly held that way, you see? And, and the bottom line is, it was, he did not want that they should make some kind of a deal, and they didn't. Okay, very frustrating to Ben-Gurion, but the Chazanich passed away the following year in 1953, not long ago was his uh, yard site, and, uh, but he stamped his stamp on the culture, pragmatic, but, but totally anti-Zionist in, in Hashkova, in, 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 um, in Outlook. Ben-Gurion, for pragmatic reasons, already had given up on drafting the religious girls in order not to drive the Haredim into the Torah Karto. And so they passed a law which says everybody gets drafted, but in point of fact, if you were Ashkenazi, let's put it this way, if you really went to Beis Yaakov for high school, then they give you a patur. The Sephardic girls, and that's the one they give a hard time to. You understand? And uh, others who want to get in there. There's, yeah, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, until Begin, this was always in the news and always making a big deal. But if you were some rabbi's daughter, or you, like I said before, if you went to Beisiako system and all the rest of it, then they said, okay, they're not going to do it. Because the government couldn't afford to have that kind of huge clash over there, which would cause their very um, legitimacy of the state to be always in the, in the news. Ben Gurion is totally aware that there's a possible demographic time bomb taking in Israel. He can't shoot them. They won't disappear. He needs their votes. Meanwhile, they have no appeal to the greater population, certainly not to the greater Ashkenazi population. This is still the case in Israel, despite the small number of Baal Shuvas, uh, notwithstanding. I mean, we take in as many as we lose. That's the bottom line. They take in so many people become religious. There's so many religious people become non-religious. That's how it goes in Israel. In the long run, though, where is it going? The numbers are building up in favor of the Haredim. In conclusion, the years 52, 56, in good old Eastern European style, you have two sets of Jews with diametrically opposed points of view, found themselves thrust together in a grand community of faith. Because outside is the Arabs. And we kill them all. They're a community of faith. Stern necessity forced them to work at a modus vivendi. And as we see, the Haredim did not, Haredim did not come out bad at all. Things is, whereas the seculars, by their own principles, um, were compelled to grant freedom of worship to the religious, because that's what part of secularism is. The religious are not bound by their principles to gain freedom from worship to the secular. Is that true or not? So what happens when there's a Haredi majority? Religion and state, instead of being partners, ended up finding each other a bone in each other's throat. But in the famous story in the Gemara, where is the Rabbi Yoshua who knows how to pull the bone out of the throat? Uh, that, as they say, lies in the future. Good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.